Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Joe, whose life changed in an instant when he suffered a sudden cardiac arrest. Things had stabilised a little bit with my heart stuff, but my mental health started to deteriorate because it was like, you know, everything I thought I wanted in life, I couldn't do. That's, That's how I felt at the time. I couldn't do any of the things I loved doing. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Molly Tresiden. On the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Joe talks to me about how he's now come to terms with having an inherited heart condition and the path that he took from being in hospital to running his own business. Joe, could we start out with, you had suffered a sudden cardiac arrest, you were just 24 years old, and before that, you didn't know that anything was wrong. What's the first thing that you remember after that happening? Yeah, so it was definitely pretty random, to say the least. So basically, for me, once I, or after I had my cardiac arrest, I actually spent three weeks in an induced coma from the the doctors induced me um so i woke up three weeks after the cardiac arrest so in for me it was almost like i went to work and then woke up three weeks later so it was particularly random and quite frightening at the same time uh, as you can probably imagine Mm, so what do you remember when you woke up so i don't know the exact moment but you know i was on quite a lot of uh you know, medication, had different drugs dripping into me. So when I woke up, it was pretty hazy. So I think the first couple of days from waking up were unusual. They didn't feel like a a day. They just felt, you know, I was waking up for for an hour, you know, every few hours because it was so on and off. Um, So once I started to realise, I was actually already out of the, you know, the rooms on the side of the ward onto the, the main ward. And uh, so, you know, as far as what I remember, it, it just kind of felt normal, you know, like waking up in the morning mm. um, as, as, as much as possible. That's what it felt like. Mm. Um, but obviously, my body must have known that something was going on because I felt I didn't feel as confused as what people might expect me to feel. So the way I look at that is I must have expected to feel a I must have expected a, a certain feeling. Yeah, and, and how was it explained to you what had happened to you? I think it was explained to me a few times because, you know, the first time must have been while I was still in and out with the haze. And, you know, they were explaining to me that I'd had this cardiac arrest and, and because I'd cardiac arrested for, for so long, um, my large bowel had to be removed because it went ischemic and it just had to be removed. It was no longer functioning. So I didn't only wake up with, um, you know, this cardiac arrest situation. I also woke up with this bag on my belly um, that I genuinely had no idea even existed. Um, mm. So the way it was explained to me was, you know, I'm really sorry, but you've had a you've had a cardiac arrest, um, and you know we've we've found that you've got a genetic heart condition. Um, after doing multiple tests while I was in this three-week coma. Um, and I was, you know, my instant reaction was like, what? Of course I haven't. You know, I'm reasonably fit, healthy. You know, I, I work hard and, you know, this, 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 
shouldn't happen to me. I'm sure that you've got this wrong. Um, so I was in quite disbelief, to be honest. And I just didn't believe them. It must mm. have taken them a few times of explaining it to me over and over and over. Not just the doctors, but the nurses, um, you know, my family as well and my, my partner. And obviously, because it was a three-week coma, you know, I could barely even sit up in a hospital bed. So, you know, my muscles had completely deteriorated as much as they possibly can. And it just felt, you know, really strange to not be able to move physically and at the same time to, to mentally have to accept that this had happened. It did take me a couple of days, but when, once it did, just me being the 24-year-old guy that I was, you know, I just wanted to to get better and get out of hospital as quickly as possible. Mm. But that took a while. Yeah, because so winding back, um, you had got no idea that you had this genetic heart condition, had you? No, it was very random. You know, no one in my family had been diagnosed with anything like this. You know, my, my granddad, uh, he passed away um, a few years before this had happened, but he was late 70s, early 80s, if I remember. And what had you been doing um, in the lead up to the cardiac arrest? I was reasonably active. Uh, you know, I just got back from a, a three-month traveling slash working stint in Canada. I spent the entire summer 2014 in Canada working really physically hard, uh, whilst also seeing the sights and uh, checking out what Canada has to offer. Um, and then I got back from that, and then it was a few weeks after that when I had my cardiac arrest. But in between that, you know, I got back to work. I used to work in hospitality. And so I was just working reasonably normally, you know, in, in quotations, um, reasonably normal, um, working hard and trying to get on my life with my then newly partner. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we had our own flat. So, we, you know, we were just working hard and, and getting on with our life, really. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. And then this came on, came along and slammed the brakes on, I imagine. Yes, it was, it was hard for everyone around me, not least, you know, my partner, Rianne, and, uh, you know, she, she had to stop everything and, and come to hospital. But the way it was explained to her what happened was a bit light because nobody wanted her to rush to the hospital. And, you know, she just had a lot of questions which nobody could answer for her. And the same for my family, you know, my sister and my nan, both got blue lighted in a police car to the hospital and my sister's a little bit dramatic she won't mind me for saying <laughs> she's a little bit dramatic um so when the police picked her up my nan was actually at bingo playing bingo as like a you know mid-70s <laughs> mm -hmm. lady loves to and my sister went to to get her but in the police car and nobody i say nobody my nan just really didn't believe what had happened you know, my sister was saying, like, come on, you need to, you need to come right now. And my nan was like, oh, just let me finish this game of bingo. I'll be there in a minute. Um, <laughs> you know, because this is how unexpected it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so they both got in the police car after some negotiation. And, you know, they just got to, to Addenbrooke's hospital very, very quickly. You know, my nan swears that she's never been that fast in a car ever. Free speed cameras and red lights and all sorts just to get to Addenbrooke's quickly because they genuinely said that I wasn't going to make it. Mm -hmm. um, I just can't even imagine 
what must have been going through their minds because mm. for me I guess I was just asleep you know I don't have many memories of, of how I actually felt during all of it because I was completely asleep mm. the heart condition that I've got um, meant that my heart just kept stopping once they managed to restart me so I ended up being down for a very very long time and you know once my nan and my sister got to hospital uh, Rianne and my partner had got to hospital you know they made the decision to transfer me from Addenbrooke's to Papworth but it was a very scary moment because you know it was it was touch and go so you know I had to go in an ambulance apparently my heart stopped again two or three times on the way uh, I think altogether my heart stopped somewhere in the region of 10 to 15 times it just kept stopping mm. um, and they had me on a machine to sort of kick start my heart once it had stopped so for them you know my family and, and my friends and, and everyone around me they were witnessing this in real time mm. so the way I talk about it is I almost brush over it because for me I was just asleep mm. but for them if you really think about what they must have gone through and how scary and terrified they must have been it must have been well, I know for a fact it was it was very difficult for them you know I, I lived a reasonably normal life I was I was an outgoing chap I'd like to say so and uh, you know I used to do some really fun exciting things that would have definitely put my heart under strain uh, and all along I had this condition that I just never knew I even had mm. it's it genuinely blows my mind when I think about it mm. Um, mm. and uh, you know the same thing you know blows my mind when I think about them the people around me that had to go through all of this this trauma yeah and then they had to wait for those three weeks while you were in the coma and I mean, presumably they didn't know what it was going to be like when you woke up. Yes, uh, very good point. So basically, you know, the intention wasn't for me to be in a three-week coma, right? They they put me in this coma to allow my brain to recover. So some of the things that they did was they covered my body in ice bags so that the blood could rush to my brain and, and help the recovery process of my brain. Mm. So... This is this is one of the things that the hospital did for me, um, because you know, as as you just said, they they had no idea how I was going to wake up. You know, them including the doctors and my family, nobody knew. No, it's you know, it's always a bit of a mystery as to how someone is going to wake up, especially after a cardiac arrest, because different people lose different things. They informed my family that I might not even know who they are. You know, I might not even be able to speak, walk. Or do anything that you know I associated normal life being when I was at that age. Mm. So you know, I imagine their thoughts are they just want me to be alive. They just want me to be able to be happy again. But you know, it, they knew that it was going to be a, a long slog. They knew mm. that it was going to be challenging. So they eventually, after three weeks, woke me up, and yeah, that's kind of when. Mm. It, it started for me because, as I said, I was asleep yeah. for that whole time. And what did the physical side of the recovery process look like? Because I was asleep for so long, you know, my muscles my muscles were weak, very, very weak. Um, if you imagine laying down in bed and then just sitting up, you know, I couldn't even do that very well. I mean, I used to try because I wanted to push myself really hard to get back to again in air quotes normal because I just wanted to 
I just wanted it to be like it never happened. I had, you know, I've got all these dreams and ambitions in life and I just wanted it to be like it never happened. And, mm. you know, the doctors were explaining it to me like it could be another 24 years for you to have another cardiac arrest. It might never happen ever again, ever. So I use this as sort of motivation um, to kind of work on myself physically. So, you know, a few days went by from me waking up and I started to get a little bit stronger being able to sit up. But whereas I'd only, I now only have a small bowel, you know, I was eating food uh, reasonably normally, <laughs> I can chew and eat normally, but because I've only got a small bowel, you only have a certain amount of sort of tummy to digest food mm -hmm. with. So energy levels were super low, um, were super, super low. So physically was was really difficult for a, for a long, long time. Um, I remember, you know, probably something like two or three weeks after waking up was my first attempt at walking a couple of steps. And I can tell you that was very, very difficult. You know, not just physically, because it was physically difficult. My legs were like jelly. I promise you, it was so challenging just to stand up, let alone walk a couple of steps. But I'd really, really tried because as I said, you know, really motivated to get back to normal. And the, the, the bathroom was just a few steps away. So I thought, oh, I can try that. But it just took me, uh, you know, a good few days of trying that after, you know, two or three weeks of just trying to sit up in bed. Mm. Um, it, after that, it just took me a few days to even get a few steps. So, you know, physically it, it was it was difficult. And of course, now I've been diagnosed with this condition at this moment, I've just been diagnosed with this condition. And I know that really I shouldn't allow my heart rate to get super high. So I've got, you know, I've got all these monitors on me while I'm trying to walk mm. six feet to the to the restroom um, or the shower, whatever it was. Um, and in the back of my mind, I'm like, is my heart rate going to be going too fast? Because mm, I, I don't think um, we've said yet, what's the name of the condition that you were diagnosed with? Yeah, so I'll give you the, the acronym first. So it's ARVC, mm -hmm. ARVC. And that stands for arrhythmogenic and right ventricular cardiomyopathy. So what I've learned now is, is that means that I have troubles with the electrical rhythm side of my heart. So, you know, you have pulses around your heart, uh, electrodes that tell your heart when to beat reasonably normally. Uh, and for me, I've got some naughty little ones <laughs> that um, tell me to go into a bad rhythm that can then make my heart rate go very, very fast. You know, we're talking well over 200 BPM. Um, mm. So, you know, the way we imagine, uh, and by we, I mean me and the doctors and the consultants that have investigated uh, my heart condition to some extent, we imagine that when I had my cardiac arrest, it was because my heart went into this normal arrhythmia, sorry, abnormal arrhythmia. You know, my heart rate got to the point where it must have been somewhere near sort of 300 BPM. Mm. So that's very, very fast, uh, very, very fast. You know, to put it into perspective, you know, I imagine a, a footballer's heart rate to be somewhere in the region of like 170, 180 when they're, when they're you know, at full capacity. So if someone's doing 100 BPM more than that, you can just imagine how insanely quick that must be. 
Um, and obviously that's made me then pass out and then proceed to my heart to just stop. It gave in. It can only go so fast. Your heart physically can only go so fast. And so that's the arrhythmia side. Um, and then you've got the cardiomyopathy side. So unfortunately for me and people like us, uh, sorry, us as in people with ARVC, um, you know, we've kind of got heart condition with two sides. Mm. So the, the C in ARVC is cardiomyopathy. And that basically means that, you know, the the right side of my uh, my ventricle is slightly enlarged. Um, and, and that creates all sorts of other issues like, um, you know, your heart not being able to pump blood as efficiently as a normal person. I keep using that word a normal person and uh so you know these two issues combined um obviously create different issues depending on what level you're at with your condition so arvc is very much a spectrum Mm. and now it means that you need to keep your heart rate kind of at a lower level yeah so one of the things that you know i i should do really is is to prevent sort of prolonged fast heart rates um so it's it's a funny way of me describing it because if i said to my doctor uh you know so what you're selling me is i should keep my heart rate pretty low and they would say well not really because actually arvc can show itself whether you're sitting still or going on a run and the only difference really was my thought process in the sense that if I go for a run and it goes to 150, 160 BPM, what if it doesn't go back down again? Um, and you know, my consultant's, um, opinion is that I shouldn't push myself for a prolonged amount of time. So yes, you know, I can walk up hills. I can get a little bit breathless if I want, as long as I don't overdo it. You know, I've got to be, I've got to be careful. I've got to be, sensible and i do think that there's a there's a line of of pushing yourself to recover from something like what i went through to overdoing it you know there, mm. there is a line uh, yeah. and i think it took me a, a good number of years to kind of find that line so now you know i can go on a a three mile hike around the countryside which is you know one of my favorite things to do but i wouldn't go rock climbing or I wouldn't go swimming and in the sea because it's just too much. I'd like to think I've found a good balance uh, of being able to do the things I want to do. I do miss things like going to the gym and going for a run because I, you know, I find there's nothing like freeing your mind and, and sort of allowing yourself to just get out of anxiety's way and going for a run i just think that's that's an amazing feeling if you can if you're allowed to mm. keep fit and you've got the you've got the green the green light to do so I, I thoroughly recommend it because i miss it with a passion being able to just go for a run or just do something that just allows me to be in control of my own physical well-being but you know i don't i don't miss too much in the sense that like, you know, I can walk, I can, I can still do things like that. And there are lots of people that can't walk because of their own health conditions. So I'm, I'm lucky in so many ways that the only thing I did lose from having my cardiac arrest is my large bowel. And possibly, you know, it, it also helped me or it also sort of 
made me struggle a little bit more with sort of my mental health because I just yeah. had no idea that something like this could even happen. So yeah. And can you can you talk me through that? Um, you've spoken before about the there was a really significant mental aspect to your recovery and to coming to terms with this. Yeah. So once I had woken up from this coma, the doctors, the consultants were explaining to me that I had to have this device, you know, called a, uh, sorry, called a, an, called an ICD, and. I was like, I have no idea what an ICD is. I barely even knew that ostomies existed, let alone an ICD. What even is that? And there were nurses and doctors using phrases like, oh, people call it a guardian angel, and they gave me a leaflet. What is an ICD? And, it, you know, a little leaflet from the NHS and explained to me what an ICD is. And uh, it stands for inverter cardio cardioverter defibrillator you might have to correct me I think it's me Im- implantable cardio ah, yes that's it <laughs> yeah that's it well done sorry so yeah it's implanted cardioverter defibrillator um that's it and uh you know I, I read this leaflet about it um and the reason why it wasn't already in my chest or in inside me is because um while I was in this induced coma I managed to pick up some uh infection um I think it was in my blood or something. So when I woke up, I had to, one of the drips I had to have was some very strong antibiotics because they needed this infection to leave my body before they could cut me open and put this uh, device in my chest, which is a device that's connected to your heart uh, and it has a reasonably reasonable-sized battery attached to it. And it's a supercomputer, really, inside this little, I don't know, two-inch square-ish shape device and it's you know it's a supercomputer that basically tracks my heart all the time so that means that if my heart goes into this bad rhythm you know my ICD would already know that it's happening and it would have been set to intervene at certain levels so the reason that I brought that up is because the mental side of things to deal with something like that was so unusual to someone like me um and i'm not saying there are anyone there is anyone out there who could deal with it in a good way but it was so it was such a foreign concept to me that this was going to be in my chest and and you know to live with it was so random Mm. did you you even know it was something that existed before this had happened to you not really i mean you know obviously i've heard of pacemakers and, you know, I'm pretty sure someone in the family somewhere has had a pacemaker. I'm pretty sure everyone knows someone somewhere that's had a pacemaker. Um, and, you know, you, you hear about them. But the defib side of things, it was an entirely new concept to my brain to even comprehend. Mm. Um, it was so random. So I was reading this little leaflet about it before it got, you know, installed. And I had to sign, you know, some documentation to say that I allow this to be installed or implanted into my chest and it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was particularly unusual to say the least. So, and obviously, you know, bear in mind as well, earlier I mentioned that, you know, some of the consultants were saying like, you know, this, this might never happen again. You might never have a cardiac arrest again. Mm-hmm. And so I, I only assumed that I would only need to have the defibrillator to be used if I had a cardiac arrest. 
Yeah. So you were thinking maybe maybe you'll have this thing, but it will never actually need to kick in. It will never actually need to shock me. Or, yeah, it will never actually need to do what it's intended and what it's built for. Mm. Um, so, you know, and I guess that was hope. I guess that's kind of what happens. You know, you get you get sick, and I guess for a lot of people, if it's if it's so out of the blue, like it was for me, uh, at least. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be out of the blue for it to be random. But for me, it was just so out of the blue that the thought of it happening twice. I mean, come on, that's like winning a lottery or being shocked by lightning. It's got to be pretty random. So right. I just, I just assumed it's never, it's never going to go off. So it's almost like you'd sort of managed to come to terms with the shock of, you know, the first cardiac arrest and the fact that it had happened to you, but yeah. almost like then you, you couldn't come around to the idea of it ever happening again. Like that would just be the thing that was too much. Yeah, exactly that. It was. It would have been too much. That's exactly right. So, you know, it was like my mental capacity was at its limit. Mm. And the only way to, the only way to kind of allow this device to be implanted in me was for me to just almost not even allow myself to consider that it can happen again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's just too much. That's just too much. Right. You know, I've just recovered from what I call the unrecoverable. Um, because I, you know, all the physical aspects, all the mental aspects were just so incredibly hard to deal with. Yeah. Um, that the, the only way for me to to allow it to to go ahead and to be implanted was be was to be there if it only needed it. And I thought that meant if I have another cardiac arrest. As a charity, the British Heart Foundation depends on the generosity of donors to continue carrying out our life-saving research. Thank you to all of those who already give. It's truly appreciated. If you too would like to donate, you can do so by going to bhf.org.uk slash donate. And now back to the conversation. And so then what did happen? So, yeah, I mean, obviously, eventually, after a long haul, long stint in the ward, (laughs) in the cardiac ward in Addenbrooke's, I managed to to go home. They 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 only would allow me to go home if I went on a wheelchair because again, I couldn't walk very well. So why would they let me leave without being able to be mobile? Mm. Um, we we were living alone, me and Rhiannon, right? So we only had so much money after all of this had happened. So you know, Rhiannon stayed home for a little while, but she had to go back to work um, mm. to to help keep this roof over our head and. It was, it was hard, but I felt happy to be home, and I remember just cooking myself all this food and just eat, eating as much as I can and resting as much as I can. And I had doctors and nurses coming over very, very regularly, you know, four or five times a week. Mm. And I spent many months like this. You know, it it was it was a very long, long sort of recovery process physically, mm. mentally. You know, I had this ICD in. Because I felt things were pretty safe, so I'd almost just swept all of the mental health stuff under the carpet, mm. under the rug. So, you know, a few months went by and I kept trying to do things more and more physically. And eventually I got to the point where I was like, right, I'm going to try and go back to work just a few hours here and there to try and 
to try and earn some some money just because I felt like Rhiannon had all of the burden and it was uh it was it was difficult for me to see that let alone I know that I'd just been through something <laughs> horrendous but for some reason I just couldn't shake the feeling that she just took all the burden on herself so I I basically rushed it, rushed myself to go back to work and I I remember look you know the way I look back on it now I remember just not I didn't look well you know I didn't look well I'd lost a lot of weight um mm. because again you know I've only got the small bowel so my weight is just nowhere near what it used to be but you know I I I managed to 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 do it because I just felt like I had to I had to that's the only way I can describe it I just there was no middle middle ground no gray area I just had to do it so that I could take some stress off of her and I guess um I also felt like the more I did the quicker I would get better as well I imagine that's another mindset I had I just had to do it right yeah like you could just force your life to be as it was again pretty much yeah I mean you know I couldn't drive because when you have an ICD implanted you have a you have a six month driving ban um so I couldn't drive so the way that I used to do it was Rhiannon would take me to my nan's uh and then I would stay at my nan's for a couple of nights a week so that I could walk to the the place I used to work which was in town where my in the village where my nan lives and you know I just I just did that <laughs> and it, like I said it I was definitely being naive, but at the time I felt like I had no choice. Mm. Um, but looking back, I mean, that was a really big mistake. I, I ended up overdoing it physically, probably mentally as well, which obviously never really been, was never diagnosed at that moment because everyone's priority was my heart, um, which is completely fair enough. But I ended up putting myself back in hospital again because my heart rate just kept going too high and... I was doing I was doing too much so I think I think it was about so it was November first couple of weeks of November when I left hospital 2014 and then June the following year so June what's that six seven months later that's when things kind of showed themselves and it's kind of when the penny dropped for me and there's no better way for me to describe it the penny dropped because I'd had what I now know is VT, this bad rhythm, uh, this bad arrhythmia, and basically my ICD shocked me. And I, I remember just being so dazed. You know, it's like if you if you hit your head and you see stars. You know, you hit your head, I don't know, on a door frame or something, you know? Hmm. You hit your head and it's like, dong. <laughs> that's the only way to describe it. And I know that's really weird, right? I know that that's going to sound really strange, but that's the only way that I can describe it. And it was like that had happened. And it was like I could almost hear the high pitch ringing that you get in your ear, hmm. um, you know, like Tweety Birds flying around your head. Literally, it felt like that. Did you realise what had happened? I genuinely had no idea what had happened. Right. I thought I'd had a cardiac arrest. Obviously, I didn't because I was alive and I was awake. <laughs> but that's just what my first thought was. Mm-hmm. And things started going really quickly. It was it was so crazy. And basically, I I basically went straight back to Addenbrooke's and 
you know, I went to A&E and they took me straight into um, one of the rooms at the side, did an ECG, um, and the next thing I know, I'm in recess ward. And obviously, uh, to this day, I still don't really know what that means. Um, but I thought it meant like, you know, you're being resuscitated. And I was like, why am I in this ward? I'm, I'm alive, I'm breathing, what's going on? And I'm laying on this bed. Now, I'm talking fast because everything around me is going fast, right? This is what it's like kind of giving you a giving mm. you a bit of an in-depth review as to what it's like to be in the moment having this sort of thing so I'd had this shock um, and then like I said got back to got to Addenbrooke so that was like a good hour between the shock and being Addenbrooke's um, but then I got onto this hospital bed in in recess and I, I, I don't know what happened but my heart went back into this ribbon rhythm I didn't know that I was in this rhythm I didn't know what it felt like to be in this rhythm. I, I must have felt poorly, but I don't remember feeling particularly poorly um, because my heart rate was going fast, but not so fast where I passed out like I did when I had my cardiac arrest before I had the ICD. Um, and then the next thing I know, I'm having what's called a VT storm, which you guys might not even know what that means because I didn't know what that means. Um, and basically it just meant that my heart was in this bad rhythm and my ICD just kept needing to reset my rhythm because the mm. pacemaker just wasn't keeping up with the speed. Um, so it kept shocking me. And I had a few shocks from my ICD um, to try and get the heart rate back to normal. Now, all along, I've got these doctors and consultants around me um, trying to take my blood, giving me cannulas so they can give me drips of medication that I might need to slow things down. And I'm basically begging them to just put me to sleep because it's exhausting, right? To keep getting shocked, hmm. uh, it's exhausting. Um, obviously, I'm super grateful that I'm alive, and I've, you know, it's still at, the, at this moment while it's happening. It's still so weird that this is even happening. Hmm. Um, so I'm saying, I'm saying to Rhiannon, like, genuinely, I, I promise you, I, I said, I said, love you. I said. You know, I'm just going to say goodbye because I feel like I'm going to die. <laughs> and genuinely, this is what it was like because yeah. it was, uh, I just didn't know what was going on. I didn't know yeah. if I was going to make yeah. it for the next hour. My family, Rhiannon rang my family because she didn't know what was going on either. Mm. You know, she, did, she didn't really know. The doctors probably didn't have time to explain to her that <laughs> the chances of me dying are pretty slim because that's what I've got this guardian angel device for. But I didn't know that. Rhiannon didn't know that. Um, and I'm saying my goodbyes because I just want to be that guy that gets to say his goodbyes. I don't know why. It's like you've seen it in movies and I wanted to be that guy um, that says his goodbyes. And, you know, she's, Rhiannon's then got on the phone. She's called my, my sister and my brother and everyone's coming down to the hospital because they, they don't know what's going on. Mm. Um, and uh, basically, you know, a few hours in, and we learned that, you know, my bloods have come back and my blood results aren't very good. So, for example, you might have heard that your body needs potassium to function. Well, my potassium levels were very, very low, mm -hmm. um, like detrimentally low. Um, and one of the reasons we assumed this was low is because I've only got this small bowel. I'm not absorbing the right nutrients from all of the food. Mm -hmm. And also... I haven't even got used to having this bag yet, this ostomy yet. Um, so 
I don't know what I'm doing when it comes to what I should be eating, what I shouldn't be eating. So I'm still eating things that I'm just not even digesting. Um, so my potassium and my sodium just dropped to a significantly low level. Mm-hmm. Um, and this point, the the ICD kicking in and delivering all these shocks and like having such a significant event again, being back in yeah. hospital, this was kind of your worst nightmare at the time, right? So was that a bit of a turning point? How did you go about recovering from that mentally? Yeah. So as I said earlier, you know, the penny dropped. It was kind of like, excuse me, it was kind of like, this is how bad my heart condition is. Up Mm. until this point, I genuinely had no idea. Now, some people might think that's crazy because you've just had a a cardiac arrest. So how could you not know you've got a bad condition? But bear in mind, the doctors are telling me that this might be another 25 years for it to happen again. It might never happen again. And this was only eight or nine months later after the initial cardiac arrest, maybe 10 months. So, you know, for it to happen so quickly, it it just, it knocked me for 10. That's Mm. the, you know, it just knocked me for 10. It was like, okay, fine, right. So this is how bad things are. Okay, right. So things are pretty bad. I probably shouldn't be pushing myself to, to try and go back to work early. You know, even even if it meant not being able to provide as much as I would like to have been able to provide my household with, me and Rhiannon with. So, you know, I stayed in hospital after this first VT storm for one night. I'd had a big potassium drip. I'd had like three bags of potassium. <laughs> And uh, so then, you know, I went back home and we just, me and Rhiannon just spoke and we just decided that we were going to leave the place that we were renting in Stamford and she was going to leave her job and we were going to go and live with Rhiannon's mum for a little while. So Rhiannon started looking for a job uh, down in Hertfordshire, not far from North London. And so she started looking for a job here and I just decided this was kind of like me drawing a line in the sand me versus my heart condition fine okay right let's let's do this let's if i'm going to do this recovery i'm going to do it properly you know at this point i didn't have any outgoings really i didn't need any money and because we were living with rihanna's mum i just had no pressure at mm-hmm. all so i just managed to take a load off i'd managed to just really just be like right okay let's stop really recover and it was then when things started to slow down molly that I started to struggle with my mental health. So things had stabilised a little bit with my heart stuff, but my mental health started to deteriorate because it was like, you know, everything I thought I wanted in life, I couldn't do. That's that's how I felt at the time. I couldn't do any of the things I love doing. And uh, so we went, so as we were living with Rihanna's mum in Hertfordshire, I... I remember speaking to my consultants and they basically arranged for me to have a, a CBT therapist. Um, so I had, I don't know how many sessions, he come around my house every single week um, and allowed me to understand what anxiety is, what it's like to have mental health, not, not problems, but mental health barriers. And... I guess like, you know, I, I did that and, and he really showed me what anxiety is. <laughs> and now many years later, I have a very good 
relationship with what I call anxiety. I almost think about anxiety as a as another being. Um, so we kind of we have a we have a an agreement. You know, he doesn't push me too hard, and I don't push him too hard. And you know, I'd like to think that I've got myself to the level where I can do the things I want to do now. You know, mm. it's it's mm. many years since living in Hertfordshire. We now have our own house, and we have our own two-year-old son who I love with every inch of my body. Um, and just imagine, you know, just seven, eight years ago, <laughs> like I just thought this was it was never going to happen. I was never, I was, I was saying my goodbyes to Rhiannon when I was in Addenbrooke's. I was genuine, you know, this was genuinely happening. It's not like, this is not a movie. This was happening to me in real life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, eight years later to, to be where I am now, you know, I've, I've worked really hard, but I wouldn't have been able to do it without the support, you know, you know, Rhiannon's mum being so flexible, Rhiannon being with me through thick and thin after being told that I might not even remember who she is when I woke up from my cardiac arrest. So to be where we are now, you know, we, we've done really well. And yeah, I, I now, now I have big ambitions, big goals, and I love doing things like talking with British Heart Foundation and, and and things like this to try and help raise a bit more awareness around heart conditions because I had no idea about it before it even happened. Yeah. And it's so great to hear because I think we first spoke, it's actually a few years ago now, and I think even since then things just seem to have got better and better for you because now you've started running your own business and you've had your son and and you're getting married this year. (laughs) Yeah, so... um, It really is, you know, it's, it's ironic because, you know, a few minutes ago I was just saying it's not a movie, but when someone says it out like that, like <laughs> you just did, it feels like a movie. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so as as I mentioned earlier, I, I used to work in hospitality and I love that industry. I love meeting new people. I love serving good food. I love all of those things. So I don't know if we're allowed to mention coronavirus came around. Um, <laughs> we can talk uh, about it. <laughs> oh, good. Well, you know, when it when it first came around, I was, you know, I was working in recruitment because physically I felt like I couldn't be on my feet as often as as often as I used to. You know, working in hospitality is long hours. You know, your feet are sore when you get home at the end of the day, and but it's such a rewarding job. However, because of those things I just felt like I needed a sit-down job so I got a job in recruitment and I really enjoyed it but when coronavirus came around obviously the country went into turmoil and I was on furlough leave for the first I think it was like six or seven months that we were in lockdown and after that we got made redundant so I, I looked back at the jobs I'd loved in the past and I love hospitality with a real passion. So I bought, uh, you know, a, a food truck to start a catering company with. Um, and that, now I've been doing that for a, a year and a half. And then, you know, Rhiannon got pregnant, <laughs> which again, you know, I, I, I used to think I didn't even want to have any children just because I know that my heart condition can be genetic. And I guess the thing that kind of steered me away from saying no to having children is the fact that we know about this condition in me now. He's going to be checked well before I was. Yeah. So, you know, so we decided to have our own baby 
and I say baby, he's now nearly three, so he's not a baby anymore. He's a toddler now. Or shall I say, teenager. See what we do. <laughs> um and uh, <laughs> and you know he's <laughs> he's uh you know he's he's my world and and I just wouldn't have life any other way obviously I'd love to be able to say you know I don't want his heart condition but it's just my life has gone on such a route such a journey that some days I wake up and I wouldn't even take that away just because of the, the experiences I've had um because of it and obviously I don't love having it but having it isn't what I originally thought the end of yeah. the world you know it sounds like now it's a part of your life which has got a lot of other things in it whereas when you were initially diagnosed it kind of took over your life yeah that that's so true so when it first happened I thought you know I, the only vision I could see in my future was where my cardiac arrest was going to be the number one thing that I think about, talk about, you know, I thought it was going to be the overshadowing moment of my entire life. And I thought that for, you know, a few years, I'm not going to lie, I did think that for a few years. Um, but then as these life altering things happened, you know, for example, getting our own house, having our own child, starting my own business, all of those all of those things have now become their own big story in my life. I'm now under a specialist heart hospital in Chelsea uh, called Royal Brompton and Harefield Trust. And they look after me in really good detail. They make me feel like I am at home. You know, when I'm there, they make me feel like I'm being looked after when I'm not there. So I almost allow them to worry about me on my behalf, which sounds really funny. Um, but I, I kind of allow them to, to worry about me and, and I kind of think about my family, my business, my house, you know, I've got a dog. <laughs> I think about those things and, and when I need to, I think about my health. You know, I'm not naive. I don't I don't think it's not important. I just mm. I've just got to terms with the fact that it's a part of me. Yeah. Joe, I think that's a really great note to end on. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me on. And uh, hopefully, you know, some listeners can get some, some benefit from this. Yeah, absolutely. For more information about conditions like Joe's, visit the BHF website at bhf.org.uk. Remember, if you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, you can contact the BHF's Heart Helpline. Details are also on our website. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on the ticker tapes at bhf.org.uk. Thank you for listening and join us next time on the ticker tapes. <laughs>